0: Okay, so Romans chapter 11, I will start in verse 25 and read through the end of the chapter. So Paul writes, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient. That because of the mercy shown to you, they also may be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, so that he may show mercy to all. O the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him, And to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So last time, which would have been two weeks ago, we looked at the previous section, verses 11 through 24. And we started looking at this question of Israel's unbelief from the perspective of God's purposes in salvation. And the question basically is, why did God allow his chosen people, his covenant people, the Jews, to largely fall into unbelief? Now, again, not all of them, but the vast majority of them have rejected the gospel, have rejected their Messiah. And Paul is trying to answer that question now. Why has God allowed this to happen? And this question, this is the question that needs to be answered. And Paul devotes here three whole chapters as he As we've been talking about how Romans is a detailed exposition of the gospel. And here he takes three whole chapters. Of course, they didn't have chapters back then, so I don't know how many pages it would have been or how many sections of the scroll it would have been on. But he devotes three whole chapters to this question, to answer this question. And he does so from three perspectives. As we saw way back when we looked at Romans 9, he answers the question from the perspective of God's Sovereignty. An election where he chooses some and passes over others. Where he chose uh, Jacob, he passed over Esau, he chose Isaac, he passed over Ishmael, and so on and so forth. But then we also saw the uh, question answered from the perspective of Israel's responsibility in Romans chapter 10. Even though God is sovereign in his choice and election, Israel still had a responsibility to believe the gospel. As it was presented to them, they had a responsibility to respond to Jesus as he taught, as he walked among them, as he performed miracles, as he did all of these things in their presence. They still had a responsibility to respond in faith. And now in Romans 11, we're going to see the question answered from the perspective of God's purpose. Why is he letting this happen? What purpose is this fulfilling in God's redemptive historical plans? And that's what Paul will answer here in Romans 11. And the idea is that God has providentially used the fact of Israel's disbelief to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. This was the pattern of gospel expansion in the book of Acts. Paul would go on his missionary journeys. He would go into a town, wherever he went to in the Gentile world, he would first go to the Jewish synagogue if they had one. And then he would proclaim the gospel to them. And then some would believe the rest would reject. And then when he was kicked out or when he uh, faced too much resistance to the gospel, then he would take it to the Gentiles. And then the Gentiles would receive it you know, They would receive it gladly. This mass conversion of Gentiles then was for the purpose of stirring the Jews to jealousy. That's what we saw last time. The idea is you see the Gentiles gladly flocking and and coming in droves to hear the gospel, to receive the Messiah. It was for the purpose of stirring the Jews to jealousy. But then Paul issues a warning in verses 17 through 21 from that last section, lest they become arrogant. And the the danger is you think, well, in God's plan, he rejected the Jews and brought me in a Gentile, so therefore I must be better. That's the idea. And Paul's like, no, no, it's not that. You're not better than the Jew. You are also a sinner. That's the whole part of the first part of Romans. Jews are sinners. Gentiles are sinners. We're all sinners. We all need mercy. We all need grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how salvation comes. We need that reconciliation. But Paul issues some warnings. He says, yes, it is true that Jewish branches were broken off from the true root of Israel so that you could be grafted in. But this is no indication of inherent worthiness on the part of you, the Gentile. God can just as easily break you off and regraft the natural branches back in. In fact, that would be far easier. The harder thing was, you know, if you're thinking horticulturally, the harder thing would be to graft the wild olive shoot into the cultivated root. It'd be much easier to take the natural branch and put it back in. And then Paul calls upon us to take in With awe and wonder, the kindness and severity of God. Now, before we get into verses 25 through 36, I want to say a few words on the subject of mystery in the Bible. Because, and the reason being that in verse 25, Paul begins by saying, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, this mystery. So mystery has a kind of a technical term in the scriptures, particularly the New Testament. It's uh, it's essentially, it's transliterated from the Greek word musterion. And it's not mystery in the sense of like Sherlock Holmes and the the Hounds of Baskerville or whatever. Or it's not in the case of Agatha Christie and Ten Little Indians or Murder on the Orient Express. That's not the kind of mystery we're talking about. The kind of mystery we're talking about here is a truth that is now being revealed in the New Testament that was once hidden or concealed from the people of the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. Now, the basic meaning of the word mystery is just a secret teaching that's known only to the initiated or a secret of any kind. So in some Gnostic religions, they would have the Gnostic mysteries. It would be things that only the people who were in on the, you know, they had the inside knowledge. They had the, the secret knowledge. So they knew the mysteries. But it's used, this word is used 27 times in the New Testament, and I think 20 or 21 of them are used by Paul. So Paul really likes this word, mystery, and he uses it often. And I said when he uses the word, he primarily uses it to express something previously hidden but now revealed. In particular, a secret that God is now revealing to his people. Again, we have to understand, when when God revealed You know, when when we look at the history of Scripture, Scripture is what we call progressive revelation, not progressive like in a liberal kind of political sense, but progressive in the sense that it starts off small but grows over the period of redemptive history. God has revealed his will to mankind in various times and various seasons, as the author of Hebrews says, in various places and various times God spoke through the prophets and dreams and so on and so forth. And at each time in redemptive history, the people of God have had enough revelation in order to fulfill God's will and to know what God wanted for them. But it's progressive. It grows. So so things in seed form in the Old Testament are fully revealed in the New Testament. Now, here are some of the mysteries we see in the New Testament. I've got three of them here. First one. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52, you don't need to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul is talking about the truth of the resurrection, he says at the end of that, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. So this is something that Paul is revealing now for the first time in the New Testament that the people of old did not have a full grasp on. The idea of the resurrection of all believers, the idea of the transformation into a glorious body of all believers, uh, that was not fully revealed in the Old Testament. Or Ephesians 3, verses 3 through 7, where Paul writes, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote in brief, by referring to this, when you read, you, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations, the past, was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed. So, something hidden in the past revealed now to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be p- specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promises in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. So there's another mystery. The idea that Gentiles would be included into the people of God. The Jews did not have this idea, at least fully formed idea, even though it was hidden in the Old Testament. They were to be a light to the nations. They were supposed to be that witness to the world of God's covenant people, and they had provisions in their own law to welcome people into the covenant but they missed that and they thought that it was just you had to be a Jew only not that the gospel would go out to the Gentiles A third mystery that Paul mentions is in Colossians 1 verses 26 and 27 where he says that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations but has now been manifested to his saints again that idea something hidden before now revealed to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of his glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So, the idea of the indwelling Christ in you through the Holy Spirit was something that was now being revealed by Paul that was kind of hidden in ages past. So, all of these truths were hidden to Old Testament saints and are now being made known to God's people. And these mysteries are being revealed. Through the ministry of Christ's apostles, whom Paul refers to as stewards of the mysteries of God. That's in 1 Corinthians 4, 3 or 4. I can't remember the chapter. I didn't put the reference down. But the, the apostles are the stewards of the mysteries of God. They are the ones who are, have this treasure. That's yeah, what Paul will say. We have this treasure in, in earthen, in earthen uh, pots and earthen jars to, to make known to the world. And now here in Romans eleven twenty five, 25, we have another mystery. And that is the mystery of this partial hardening of the Jews, which we'll consider in just a few moments. But as we come now to Romans eleven twenty five 25 through 36, we're going to be concluding here Paul's little excursus on the question of Israel's unbelief. And the slightly short answer to that question is this. It can be summarized as, as this way. God has not fully nor finally rejected his people, the Jews. God's word and promises have not failed. And God is in full control and is working all things for his glory and praise. That is kind of the short answer to what the question that is being answered in Romans 9 through 11. God has not fully nor finally rejected his people, the Jews. All throughout This passage here, Romans 9 through 11, when Paul refers to Israel, he's referring to ethnic Jews. Typically, in other places, Israel is referred to as the people of God, which would include uh, Gentiles, as we saw from Ephesians 3, that they've been included into the people of God. But God has not fully nor finally rejected his people, the Jews. God's words and promises have not failed, and he is in full control and is working all things for his glory and praise. Now, as I look at this passage here, there are three things we could probably, three headings we can put this passage under. First, we're going to see in verses 25 and 27, a partial hardening. Then in verses 28 through 32, an irrevocable call. And in 33 through 36, an unsearchable, fathomable God. So first, let's look here at the partial hardening in verses 25 through 27. So as Paul begins this last section of this last chapter of this excursus, he begins by saying to his readers that he doesn't want them to be uninformed. I don't want you to be ignorant of this, brothers. I don't want you to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, just like in verse 13, earlier in the chapter, where Paul now turns his attention to his Gentile readers, he's still talking to his Gentile readers at this point, where he's saying to them, I don't want you Gentile Christians to be uninformed about this. And the reason he doesn't want them to be uninformed is so that you don't be wise in your own estimation or wise in your own sight or not to be conceited. Don't let this idea that you are being saved sort of quote unquote at the expense of Jewish people Sort of lead to you becoming arrogant and conceited and wise in your own estimation. So he's here re- reinforcing this idea that the Gentiles should not be arrogant, that they should not be conceited. God has a plan regarding the salvation of both the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, again, he refers to this plan that God has that he's revealing as a mystery. And like I said, we just you know, just spoke about mysteries in the Bible generally and looked at some specific ones. But here, the mystery that Paul is going to reveal in Romans 11 has three components. And that first, the first component is there's a partial hardening of the Jews. That's part of the mystery. So part of what is being revealed now to the people of God is that a partial hardening of the Jews has come in. The second part of the mystery is that this partial hardening will last until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. So there is a, a time limit on it. There's an expiration date, if you will, on this partial hardening. And then the third part of this mystery is that when that fullness comes in, then all Israel will be saved. So we'll look at this and we'll look at each of these three parts. So first, the partial hardening of the Jews. Now this takes us back to what we saw last time, and also in Romans nine. That God, according to His sovereign will, has allowed the majority of the Jewish people to fall into unbelief. In the words of Romans 9:18, 9, 9, He hardens whom He desires. He has mercy on whom He wills, and he hardens whom He wills. He has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. And then in Romans 11 verse 7, the chosen of Israel, they, they are the ones that find the righteousness that comes by faith, And then he says, "The rest were hardened. So the elect, the remnant, if you remember, we looked at that section, the remnant, the, that, that sort of seed of faithful Jewish people that God has preserved throughout the entire redemptive history, that seed, they have found the salvation that is by grace through faith in Christ, but the rest, he says, are hardened. Israel's failure in regards to the gospel, though it was manifested in their willful rejection of the Messiah, is rooted here in God's sovereign partial hardening. And this is part of the mystery. The second part of the mystery is that this partial hardening will remain in effect until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now this phrase, the the idea at least behind the phrase, the fullness of the Gentiles, not too difficult to desire, that there's probably, decipher I should say, that there's some there's a number of Gentiles that are to become, they're going to come in, and when that number is reached, then this partial hardening will be lifted. Now, there is a period of time known only to God in which the Gentiles are now being added to the kingdom in vast numbers, but there is a set number. There is a point in time. There's an expiration date when the number of elect Gentiles will be filled and then completed. Jesus himself had something to say on this during uh, his earthly ministry. During his during Luke's version of the Olivet Discourse, in Luke 21, verse 24, Jesus says, this is during, he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem at this point, point. and he says, they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations, that is the people of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So in other words, this this judgment on Israel, this judgment on Jerusalem will be in effect until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And then in John's gospel, chapter 10, verse 16, where he is giving the I am the great shepherd discourse to the people, he says, I have other sheep. So he talks about the sheep that he has, the sheep that know his voice, and and he calls them by name. These are my sheep. And they listen to me. They follow me. And then he says, I also have other sheep that are not of this fold. In other words, I have sheep that, you know, if this fold was is Israel, are ethnic Jews, I have other sheep that are outside of this fold, which are not of this fold. And I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. So this idea that he is not only gathering Jewish people, he's going to gather these other Sheep that are not part of this fold, and they they will all be under one flock with one shepherd. So the time of the Gentiles and the fullness of the Gentiles, I believe, refer both or both refer to the same thing, which is during this overlap of the ages. So we have you know the old age, and then with the coming of Christ, you have the age to come sort of overlaps into it. It sort of breaks forth, so you have this sort of like. Tension between the already and the not yet, this overlapping period where the age to come is sort of broken forth with the coming of Christ. In this overlap of the ages, which we call the church age, most Jews will reject and many Gentiles will be saved. But this period has a marked ending. And then when that ending comes, when that period comes, something awesome is going to happen. Something amazing is going to happen. Something that God, that Paul will later break forth into praise is going to happen. And that thing is that all Israel will be saved. And that's what Paul says in verse 26. And so all Israel will be saved. Now, this is the controversial and contested portion of the, the passage here that we, you know, again, most of this passage is not too difficult to understand. But this one's like, what does Paul mean by all Israel will be saved? Well, how, many, how many views do you think there are on this? <laughs> many. Well, more than one. There are three main views that have been put forward. And the three main views are these. All Israel means all spiritual Israel, that is, Jews and Gentiles who are part of the Israel of God, as Paul will say in Galatians 6. So all the people of God, all the elect people of God comprise of Jews and Gentiles. That's view one. View two is all Israel means all elect ethnic Israel. All elect ethnic Israel. And then view three, all Israel means all ethnic Israel of the final generation. All ethnic Israel of the final generation. Those are the three main views. Now, the first view, in my opinion, is kind of sort of like a given, right? If you say that all Israel is spiritual Israel comprised of the elect uh, Jews and Gentiles, that all Israel, in that sense, will be saved, that's kind of a given. That's like a tautology. That's like saying A equals A. It's like, of course, all ethnic Israel, you know, of course, all the elect are going to be saved. That's what God is doing during this whole period. He is calling forth all the elect, so in saying all Israel would be, be saved, Paul isn't really saying much if Israel is spiritual Israel. He's just saying all the elect are going to be saved. Okay, that's what we believe, right? All the elect are going to be saved. Now the second view, I think, has a little more to commend it. So this is where uh, all Israel is all-elect ethnic Israel. Like I said, it has a little more to commend to it because you have a correspondence in between all Israel and the fullness of the Gentiles. So you've got sort of a correspondence going there. So Paul is saying that a partial hardening of ethnic Jews is occurring until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And then when that fullness comes in, the rest of the elect ethnic Jews will be saved. And I think there's, there's some merit to that view. But the third view, in my opinion, I think has the most to commend it. So that when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, there's going to be a mass conversion of ethnic Jews, and they will be elect ethnic Jews, and they're not going to be unelect ethnic Jews, but there's going to be a mass conversion of ethnic Jews near the end of the age. And so massive will this conversion be that it will indeed appear as if all Israel is being saved. You're going to get a mass conversion of Jewish people near the end of the age. And I think this view seems to comport well with what Paul says in the rest of his argument in Romans 11. If you look at verse 12, he says in verse 12, now if there, that is the Jews, transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Or in verse 15, for if there, the Jewish rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Paul seems to be kind of hinting here this idea of a mass conversion of Jews once the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. It'll, this, this, this age will end, the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, and then the, full, the fulfillment or the fullness of the Jews will come in at that point. And then Paul quotes from a couple of Old Testament passages here, or no, sorry, one Old Testament passage in verses 26 and 27 to show how this mystery was sort of spoken of in the Old Testament. Here he is citing from uh, Isaiah 59 verses 20 and 21, where he says, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Now, Jacob is a typical name for Israel in the prophetic writings because Jacob the patriarch, his name was changed to Israel. And then in verse 27, this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So the salvation of all Israel here shows that God is to be a promise keeper to the covenants that he made with the patriarchs. He made promises to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that these promises will be kept in this great ingathering, if you will, at the end of the age when all Israel will be saved. So now let's move on to verses 28 through 32, where we see an irrevocable call. So this idea of God being a promise keeper is further fleshed out here in verses 28 and 29, where he says, from the standpoint of the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sake, the Gentiles. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. And then in verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So as it pertains to the Jewish people, the ethnic Jewish people, they are at this point in time, they are enemies of the gospel. And they are enemies of the gospel for the sake of the Gentiles, So Israel has been hardened, and as a result, many Jews are unbelievers, so they become enemies of the gospel. So then, because of that, that gospel message then goes out to the Gentiles, and then they are saved in mass numbers. So again, as we've been learning all throughout Romans 11, the Jews are enemies of the gospel for our sake, for the sake of the Gentiles. That's you and me. We are here believers in Christ because of his, you know, Jewish rejection at some point. Because then the gospel message just continued to go out to the ends of the earth until here we are still reaping the benefits of that salvation here and now in the 21st century. And again, the reason why the early church grew at the rate that it did was due basically to two main factors. You have persecution, which drove the Christians out of their current region into new regions. You see that in the book of Acts, right? The the people, the early church was sort of congregating in the city of Jerusalem until you had that persecution and sent them out into Samaria and into the rest of Judea. And then eventually more persecution sent people out. And then God calls Paul and says, I want you to be my apostle to the Gentiles. And then it goes off and it it fulfills what Jesus himself said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he says, You will be my witnesses of the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So that, you know, if you think about, you know, the concentric circles, if you drop a rock into a pond, you get the the ripples that go out. That was the gospel starting in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the rest of the world. So that persecution was part of God's providential plan to drive the gospel out to other regions, but then another part of God's providential plan, which is why the church grew at the rate it did, was, again, Jewish rejection. So as the Jews rejected it, then the apostles would take it to other people in, the, in that same region. And again, all of this according to God's sovereign plan. But even though they are right now, currently, enemies from the standpoint of the gospel, they, the Jews are beloved from the standpoint of God's choice. The phrase literally reads, according to the election, God chose the Jewish people from all of the nations of the world. God chose the Jewish people to be his special people. Of all the people in the world, God chose Abraham to be the one through whom the promises would come. And it wasn't because Israel was some mighty nation. It wasn't because they were some holy nation. It wasn't because they were so great and good and powerful and whatever but it was for the sake of the fathers, that is the patriarchs. So God chose the nation of Israel because he made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. Moses tells the people before they enter into the promised land, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you, and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God chose Israel because he made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He promised them that their descendants would fill the earth. Now we know in a sense that this is speaking of Not just ethnic Jews, but anyone who is a child of faith, like Abraham, who is the father of the faithful. We learn that in Romans 4. But it also does mean actual ethnic Jewish descendants. The promises made to the Jewish people. And the reason for this is because, as he says in verse 29, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God makes a promise. He doesn't take it back. God does, he says he's going to do something he does not then change his mind and renege on that. That word irrevocable, essentially, I could try to read the Greek word, ametamalatos, means not repented of, not regretted. God is not one who repents of his choices. He's not one who regrets his choices. He doesn't, you know, Israel's unbelief has not and does not make God sorry that he chose them. And those promises are just as good now as the day they were made to the patriarchs. There are no take backs with God, no backsies, right? And aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad for that? Because if God, could, if God could change his mind about the Jews, God could change his mind about you and me, right? You know, I mean, how many of us have sinned since coming to Christ, okay? That's all of us. We've all sinned since coming to Christ. If God could just say, okay, I'm tired of you, I'm going to revoke my promises to you. You know, even though I made a promise to you in Christ that you would be saved, that because of your faith you would have the imputed righteousness of Christ, so that you would be holy in my sight, I'm going to take that back. I'm going to change my mind. I'm tired of you. You know, I mean, I've often felt that God could say that to me any number of times, but there are no takebacks, no backsees with God. And then in verses 30 and 31, in language that is reminiscent of what Paul says in verses 11 through 16 of chapter 11, where he says, for just as once you were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also, that is the Jews, now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they may also now be shown mercy. So he's saying to the Gentiles, you were disobedient. And God has shown you mercy. And now those Jewish people have also been disobedient so that I can prove to the world that I can show them mercy as well. And the key element here in salvation is essentially boils down to this. God's mercy. We are saved because God is merciful. The Gentiles were at one time disobedient, but now they've been shown God's mercy and this mercy came to the Gentiles through the providential partial hardening of the jews but just as god's mercy was extended to the gentiles god can just as easily show mercy again to the jewish people and then all of this will redound to the glory and praise of god which we will see in a moment but just as if you remember way back when we looked at romans verse uh, chapter 3 verse 9 and chapter 3 verses 19 and 20 We're all disobedient and thus we all need mercy because God, you know, God, when he's giving that indictment of of the sins that are against all of us, Jew and Gentile alike, he says, you know, the law of God has been presented to to shut the mouths of sinful people. You know, you can't you have nothing to say back to God. The charges have been read. You are guilty. You are guilty before God's bar of justice and you cannot say anything in your defense. He has shut the mouths of all people. And here you see again in verse 32. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Right? You know, so we are under the weight of God's judgment and we are, we have nothing to say. If we're honest with ourselves, if we were to look at our lives and we were to consider our lives in light of the word of God, we would say, I have no standing before God's bar of justice. If it were up to me, if it were up to my works, I would be condemned for all eternity. So God has shut me up in my own disobedience so that he may show mercy to you. So each group Jew and Gentile has undergone a period of disobedience to highlight and underscore the absolute need of mercy. And then finally here in verses 33 to 36, as we come now to the last few verses of Romans 11, Paul here cannot help but break out into praise. He cannot help. He cannot contain himself. It's like, okay, I've held myself now for 11 and three-quarter chapters. I cannot help myself. I must break forth in praise. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Here, Paul is giving us the proper response to doctrine. He has spent Ten and a half, ten and three quarters chapters, expounding the gospel of God, explaining the mysteries of God, explaining the benefits of the gospel of God, explaining salvation, telling us that Jesus Christ is our propitiation for sins, and so on and so forth. And then finally, it's like, okay, I've given you all this teaching. What is the payoff for this? What is my response? The response is praise. Now, there are those throughout the history of the church who have downplayed doctrine. How many people have heard doctrine divides, but love unites, right? Doctrine divides, love unites, or doctrine leads to stale orthodoxy. All you do when you, you study doctrine all the time is you just, you become sort of, we're orthodox, you become like the church in, of Ephesus in, in Revelation chapter two, the loveless church. We become a stale, loveless church because we're, we're, you know, we're like these, you know, Mr. Spock with our heads full of Bible knowledge and, you know, we're just like robot people with no love. Or how about this one? Doctrine or knowledge puffs up. That's actually from the Bible, right? 1 Corinthians 8.1. Knowledge puffs up. And that's true. And to be sure, many of the splits and divisions we've seen in the church have been over doctrinal teaching. But there also comes a time when Christians of good conscience must take a stand on doctrine. They must take a stand on the truth. Truth matters, right? I mean, that's what we believe. If truth didn't matter, then you know, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? We would just kind of merge with every other liberal church in the world and just kind of build houses for the poor and give food to the poor, and that's all we would do. We would be sending people to hell with bellies full and clothes on their back and roofs over their head because we're not preaching the gospel. Doctrine is necessary in the Christian life. Jesus says in John's Gospel, in John 17, 3, where he says, this is in his high priestly prayer, this is eternal life. That they may know you, the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So eternal life, part of it at least, is knowing God. How do you know God unless you have doctrine, unless you have teaching? Or in John uh, chapter 1 verse 18, Jesus came to make the Father known. He came to explain him. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. If you remember when we went through John's Gospel, that portion of John's Gospel, uh, that word explained is the word exegete. It, it's what I do. <laughs> you know, that's what we're taught in seminary, to exegete the scriptures, to, to draw out from the scriptures what they are teaching and then present that to the people of God explaining the Word of God. Well, Jesus is the exegete par excellence, right? He came to make the Father known. How does he do that? Because he was in the beginning, in the bosom of the Father. He was there face-to-face with God himself, God the Father, God the Son, in a face-to-face relationship. He is the one who perfectly knows the Father and is perfectly able then to explain him, to make him known. You can't love God unless you know him. You can't love your spouse unless you know him or her. You can't love your children unless you know them. Knowledge is part of love. That's in fact that's part of the reason why that word is used euphemistically in the Bible to explain a sexual union. Adam knew his wife. He didn't just know her in a kind of a stale knowledge like, yes, you're Eve, yes, you're a woman, yes, you're, you know, this is your height, this is your weight, and okay, I know you. It's like that's it's like okay that that's pretty stale. No, he knew her. He had intimate relations with her. Knowledge is core. Uh, believe, being a Christian means knowing, believing, and trusting certain core truths of the faith. Because there are many out there who think they know God, but they don't because their doctrine is either wrong or it's incomplete. But doctrine is never meant to lead to unnecessary divisions. It's never meant to lead to stale orthodoxy, nor is it ever meant to lead to arrogance. Paul here is saying doctrine leads to doxology, it leads to praise. So, after expounding on the depths and riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ and all its benefits, after explaining the glorious mystery of how God still has a plan for his chosen people, the Jews, Paul doesn't just then file these things away in his brain as good things to know. If our doctrine doesn't lead to praise, then we're doing church wrong. Think about this. If you consider, when you consider the grace of God, when you consider the mercy of God, when you consider the holiness of God, the wrath of God, the love of God, the person and work of Jesus Christ, The benefits that we have by virtue of our union with Christ. The work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to sanctify us and make us holy. The providence of God in his salvation both of Jews and Gentiles. How can you not break forth in praise? Paul praises God both for his wisdom and knowledge. His wisdom and knowledge are deep as the depths of the sea. They are rich, never running out of resources. They are unsearchable, unfathomable. In other words, the wisdom, knowledge, judgments, and ways of God so far surpass those of man that Paul cannot begin to see the limits of them. Think of that old Motown song, right? Ain't no mountain high enough, ain't no valley deep enough, however the song goes. The point is... There's no limit to the extent of God's knowledge and wisdom and judgments and goodness and holiness and all these other things. Then Paul quotes from two more Old Testament passages passages to show how God's wisdom and knowledge far exceed our own in verses 34 and 5. For who has become, sorry, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him? The first verse quotes isaiah 40 verse 13 the second one job 41 verse 11 no one's going to go up to god and say here's something you might want to consider (laughs) you know here's something maybe you didn't think about or you know you know maybe you can do things a little differently god right no one can search the mind of the lord no one can serve as, as his advisor and whenever people presume to say they could do a better job than god just point them to these verses Okay? No one's going to be able to do a better job than God. And then finally in verse 36: for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. Amen. So God is the source of all things, God is the sustainer of all things, and God is the goal of all things. And thus it is fitting that Paul concludes this section with praise. That God receive all glory and honor and praise forever. Well, that's the end of Romans chapter 11. We made it through 9 through 11. I don't know how many sections it took. I think it was like 10 or 12. But anyway, next time, Lord willing, we're going to get to the practical section of Romans. Because if doctrine leads to doxology, then doxology leads to duty. Okay, I, I alliterated that for you nicely. You've got dox, you know, doctrine, doxology, duty. What do we do now? What is, how does the gospel inform our living? How does the gospel shape how we behave? And again, think about how the Heidelberg is, is, is structured, right? You've got guilt, grace, gratitude. So you know, guilt, the idea that you are a sinner, grace, that you are saved by grace through faith. Now, what is my response? Gratitude. Or sin, salvation, service. I've got all the alliterations going on here. But anyway, like I said, next time, Lord willing, the 25th, we're going to consider just two verses. Romans 12 verses 1 through 2 as we look at um, Paul's call for us to be living sacrifices.